Now today we're going to talk about evidence for the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, Paul tells us how important evidence for the resurrection is. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. I'm going to waste your time for the next half hour if Christ has not been raised. And so is your faith. And so this is incredibly important. And as I said last Sunday, though, I want us to go on offense rather than playing defense. So many times Christ followers feel on the defensive. Let me say a particular word to those of you that are students uh, and, and maybe what you uh, hear in the classroom or from a professor or from a fellow student. And sometimes you get def- we get defensive and I get defensive. And we think, well, if we don't have 100% of the answers 100% of the time, oh my, the whole thing falls apart. Uh, the analogy I used last Sunday is it's like terrorism. Uh, the FBI and law enforcement, they feel like they have to be right 100% of the time. The terrorists just have to be right once, and they'll have a terror attack. But our law enforcement, they have to be right 100% of the time uh, to defend us against that. And we think it's that way in our Christian faith. It is not. It is more like a courtroom. It is like legal evidence. Uh, you have to show something beyond a reasonable doubt, like you are if you sit on a jury. And so you ask the question, is it more reasonable to believe option A or option B? Is there more evidence uh, for the prosecution or for uh, the defense? I shared the story last Sunday about the judge um, that uh, where I was in the courtroom and I was on a jury and she was just so sharp, just an unbelievable judge. And she went to our church, but I didn't realize that. And that was highly embarrassing to me when she was asking the questions, you know, do you recognize the defense? Do you recognize the prosecution? Do you recognize me? And I said, no. And she goes, I go to your church. And so whole courtroom explodes in laughter. Well, here's a picture of her, uh, uh, Judge uh, Gloria uh, White-Brown, and just a phenomenal judge. and has been part of our church family. She was for many, many years. And at any rate, um, let's imagine that Judge Gloria is presiding in the court, and the prosecution goes, and then the defense goes, and the question is not, do we have perfect evidence 100% of the time? The question is, Do we have enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? Is there more evidence for this than there is for something else? And so first of all, we talk about the evidence of the empty tomb. Uh, Luke 24, verses 6 through 7. He is not here, he meaning Jesus. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Now, something I came across this past week, just absolutely fascinating, by Gary Habermas, who's considered the world's foremost expert on, on the resurrection, an incredible scholar, brilliant man, number one expert in the world. He spoke it at our church uh, a couple of years ago. And he said that there are 12 historical facts, and this is so interesting to me. These are agreed on all the way from a Christ follower like us that believes in the resurrection, believes that Jesus rose from the dead, all the way to an atheist or to a scholar who's a skeptic or someone who does not believe in the resurrection, an atheist or an agnostic or a skeptic uh, who does not believe in the resurrection. These are 12 historical facts that everybody, almost everybody, agrees on. They're like historically uh, close to being without dispute. Okay, Here, here are the 12 facts. Number one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Number two, he was buried, most likely in a private tomb. Number three, soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. Number four, Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his interment. Number five, 
The disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Number six, due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They were even willing to die for their belief. Number seven, the proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the beginning of church history. Number eight, the disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem where Jesus had been crucified and buried shortly before. Number nine, the gospel message centered on the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Number 10, Sunday was now the primary day after this event for gathering and worship. Number 11, James, the brother of Jesus and a skeptic before this time, was converted when he believed he also saw the risen Jesus. Number 12, just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, named Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Now, these are 12 things that all the way from the atheist skeptic to the follower of Christ who believes in the resurrection, they all agree on. These are close to being indisputable historical facts. Okay. Now, the difference is in the explanation. Uh, we have a certain explanation for that, which is that Christ rose from the dead. That's our explanation. There are alternative explanations that we're going to look at uh, here today. Now, uh, attorneys will tell you that in a courtroom, or if you've been in a courtroom, the prosecution goes first, the defense goes second. So last Sunday, we did the case for the prosecution. We talked about the 10 uh, top reasons why we believe that the New Testament writers were telling the truth. And so the prosecution went. Now this week, the defense is going to go. And they're going to give alternative theories. After last week's prosecution, it's like, wow, it just seems like the evidence is overwhelming. Jesus rose from the grave. So now the defense is going to get up and give alternative theories as to what uh, could possibly, alternative explanations as to what could happen. And then we're going to go back with a rebuttal from the prosecution once again. Objections to the resurrection. Or really, objections, I think the better term I wish I'd put in the outline was alternative theories to the resurrection. Objection number one, he didn't really die, which is called the swoon theory. Uh, best illustration of this is a California dog, and this is a very tough uh, and strong California dog, Dosha. Uh, true story. Dosha's ordeal began April 15th when she escaped from her owner's backyard. And this happened down in Paramount, uh, very near us here in the Los Angeles area. Uh, she escaped from her owner's backyard and was hit by a car. The Clear Lake uh, police officer who reported to the scene shot the collarless dog when no one could tell him who owned her. So he thinks she's wounded beyond repair, uh, so he, he shoots her. The dog was taken to the local animal shelter where she was put in a freezer for disposal. Uh, this is a bad day for a dog. Okay, hit by a car, shot by a police officer, put in a freezer. About two hours later, the center's interim director found Dosha standing upright in a plastic orange bag in the freezer. That'll, that'll freak you out every time, man. You have n nightmares of that for, forever. Now, Dosha swooned. She did not die. And so the swoon theory says that the same thing uh, happened to Jesus. Objection number two or alternative theory number two is the body was stolen, the stolen body theory. And we spent a bit of time with that last Sunday. Matthew 28, verse 12. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, three possibilities as to who stole it. I'm going to lump together the Roman government and the Jewish authorities because they would have the same goal. If they could find the body, then that would discredit the the Christian faith and the resurrection. They have absolutely no motive, uh, the Jewish uh, authorities and the Roman authorities. They would have loved to produce the body. It would have crushed the growing movement of Christianity, which they desperately wanted to put out of existence and would have saved a lot of time, money, and effort on the part of the Roman government in terms of persecution. So the more likely culprit would be the disciples. Uh, So here's how the disciples would think about it. We're going to steal the body. Now remember, this is a group of fishermen and accountants who have to wrestle away the body from a group of Roman soldiers, professional soldiers, who under threat of death, if they fell asleep while watching the grave of Jesus, would be executed for falling asleep and for the body getting away from them. We're going to steal the body, and then we're going to lie and claim the body was resurrected. Then we're going to have the unspeakable privilege of living as penniless evangelists, wandering around the rest of our lives, being beaten, whipped, thrown in jail, and put to death. Now you might say, but Glenn, people die for their faith all the time. That's what happened in 9-11 with the the terror attacks. Uh, What's the difference? Here's the key. People will die for their faith if they believe that it is true. But people will not die for their faith if they know that it's false. And the disciples were in the position to know whether the story of the resurrection was true or false. And yet 10 out of 11 of them were executed for this conviction that the resurrection had happened, six of them by crucifixion, and yet not one of them recanted their story. Uh, Objection number three, or alternative theory number three, is the hallucination theory. These people had such an anticipation of resurrection, were so excited about Jesus rising, that they actually projected their own hallucinations because of this strong desire. They thought they saw Jesus because they wanted to see him so badly. There are three problems with this. Number one, hallucinations are not group events. Uh, you, You can't have 500 people seeing the same hallucination at the same time. I can't say to you, remember what I said to you in my dream last night. You have your dreams, I have my dreams. They never intersect with each other. They are individual events. Number two, they weren't expecting the resurrection. Uh, Mary and the women, when they came um, uh, to the tomb, they weren't coming to greet a resurrected Jesus. They were coming to anoint and to embalm a dead body. Uh, Doubting Thomas is called Doubting Thomas because he doubted even after stories of the resurrection from the women and from some of the other uh, disciples. Uh, Number three, Jesus appeared to believers and unbelievers alike. Paul, who was an enemy of Christianity, on his way to Antioch to kill and to persecute Christians there, Jesus appeared to him, who was an unbeliever, hated the church, hated followers of Christ, and yet he too claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. Um, One uh, psychologist said that for 500 people to hallucinate the same time would be a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. Uh, Let's watch this together. Dr. Roberta Waters, president of the American Association of Psychoanalysts, agnostic. Ah, agnostic, why not? And a leading authority on human behavior at Purdue University. Indiana, great. Dr. Waters. Ah, hello, Mrs. Strobel. As much as I would like to help a fellow skeptic, 
What you're proposing is completely impossible. But how can you say that? I mean, if Charles Manson can turn his followers into murderous zombies, surely the followers of the Christ cult could be convinced of their own delusions? Listen, hallucinations are like dreams. They happen in individual minds. They don't spread like the common cold. Okay, so a hypnotist turns a stage full of insurance salesmen into, into clucking chickens. Then that's, that's not really happening, or...? No, of course it is. The power of suggestion can be very profound, but it's one thing to be mesmerized into making animal noises. It's quite another for 500 people to have the same dream. To be honest, that would be an even bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. And then objection or alternative defense theory number four, the wrong tomb theory. What if the disciples all simply went to the wrong tomb? Now, this is impossible because it was women. If men had gone, they would have not asked directions, and so uh, this is a possibility, but, but it was women that went. After all, it was early in the morning when these exhausted, emotionally drained, psychologically jaded disciples saw a tomb, which looked like Jesus' tomb. It was empty, they jumped for joy, thought that he was alive, and the rest is history. Uh, two problems. Number one, this was not a little execution. This was the biggest execution in human history with crowds of people. Uh, we can say the name of the person whose tomb it was today, Joseph of Arimathea. He would have certainly pointed out that they had gone to the wrong tomb. But here's the biggest reason. Number two, if it was the wrong tomb, that means there was a right tomb. That means there was a body somewhere. That means the Roman authorities and Jewish leaders could have easily produced this body and crushed the growing movement. So what are we left with? And you'll see it there in your study outline. And I put a lot of this in your study outline so you could share it with other people uh, if you get the chance. Over 500 witnesses recorded in the Bible who saw Jesus alive. A faith with a resurrection message at its core that spread like wildfire. Timid fishermen and accountants who are suddenly and radically changed, refusing to back down on their claims even in the face of horrific torture. The very same disciples who three days before backed down and denied Jesus Christ when challenged by a servant girl. Now let's go back on the prosecution side again. Let's give some more evidence. The evidence of fulfilled prophecies. You'll see the chart there in your study outline. I just gave you 24 of the 300 prophecies about Jesus. Almost all of them were outside of Jesus' control. That is, he couldn't sit there and say, you know, take the Old Testament and say, check, did that one, check, did that one. There are a handful that that would be true of, but the vast majority of them were things that were out of his control. And I've shared with you this statistic before, but the chances that randomly, even just eight of these could happen randomly by chance is one chance in 10 to the 28th power. That is one chance in one with 28 zeros behind it that just eight of these could happen by accident and yet he fulfilled 300 of them. The evidence of uh, fulfilled prophecy. Then number three, the evidence of eyewitness accounts. 1 Corinthians 15 verse three. Uh, Paul writes, for I received, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the 12, the 12 disciples or apostles, and that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, 
at the same time, most of whom are still living. These witnesses were still alive. And if Paul were saying something that wasn't true, they could have said, hey, was there, didn't happen. But they didn't say that. Why? Because they knew that it had happened. One of the miracles of history that historians struggle with is how could half of the city of Jerusalem within a few years be followers of Christ? Because they were, they were at the time period. They were there when the events happened. And yet these skeptical, people think, oh, the Jewish people, they were gullible. No, they weren't. They were highly skeptical. They had a lot of false messiahs. They were very skeptical. And yet here, they take 1,500 years of tradition and overnight change it, half the city of Jerusalem. How did that happen so rapidly? How did that happen almost instantaneously? I'll tell you why. Because half of the city of Jerusalem either had seen Jesus themselves or somebody they knew and respected had seen him. And so either they had seen him or somebody they trusted, a family member, a close friend, somebody they said, boy, if they say they saw him, then they must have seen him. That explains the historical miracle of how practically overnight uh, the, the half of the city of Jerusalem, tens of thousands of people became followers of Christ. It goes on to say in, in verses 7 and 8, verse 7, um, there he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, that's Paul, as to one abnormally born. In Acts 1, verse 3, after his suffering, Luke, the doctor who's investigating this, says he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So uh, hundreds and hundreds of people that he appeared to over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And then number four, the evidence of the resurrection's uh, impact. Evidence of the, the, the fact of the Christian church. Uh, you can read some of this on your own, but it is worldwide in scope. Its history can be tracked back to Palestine around A.D. 32. Did it just happen or was there a cause for it? These people who were first called Christians at Antioch turned the world of their time upside down. They constantly referred to the resurrection as the basis for their teaching, preaching, living, and most significantly dying. The fact of the Christian day, the mere fact that we're here on Sunday morning rather than Saturday morning is evidence of the resurrection. For 1,500 years, the Jewish people had be believed by pain of death that Saturday was the day you were supposed to worship. Sunday is the day of worship for Christians. Its history can also be traced back to the year A.D. 32. Such a shift in the calendar was monumental and something cataclysmic must have happened to change the day of worship from the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, to Sunday, the first day. Christians said the shift came because of their desire to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, the fact of the Christian book, the New Testament, in its pages are contained six independent testimonies to the fact of the resurrection. Three of them are by eyewitnesses, John, Peter, and Matthew. Paul, writing to the churches at an early date, referred to the resurrection in such a way that it is obvious that to him and his readers, the event was well known and accepted without question. Are these men who helped transform the moral structure of society consummate liars or deluded madmen? These alternatives, these Alternative defense theories are harder to believe than the fact of the resurrection, and there is no shred of evidence to support them. And then number five, the evidence of changed lives. Uh, this is where you come in. 
This is where I come in. This is where we come in. John 8, 32. And then Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How many of you will raise your hands right now and say that the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed your lives? Let me see. And you're added to the witness list. And you are in line with billions and billions of Christ followers through the years who will take the witness stand and say, even though it happened 2,000 years ago, it has changed my life. Uh, One of the last things Jesus said before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, and you will be my witnesses. The testimony, the evidence of changed lives. John R.W. Stott, a British scholar, writes, the transformation, the change in the disciples is perhaps the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. There is no other explanation. Uh, Does the evidence hold up legally in the court of law? Uh, Simon Greenleaf, we talked about him last Sunday. He's the professor at Harvard Law School, and he's the one that made Harvard Law School what it is today. He's considered one of the greatest legal evidence experts in all of human history. Years ago, he was challenged by one of his students to examine the legal evidence for the resurrection. He had a Jewish background. He examined the evidence and became a follower of Christ. He wrote, all that Christianity asks of men and women is that they be consistent Uh, They'd be open-minded to the evidence. The result would be an undoubting conviction of the integrity, ability, and truth of the evidence. And then a a quote uh, to finish up here uh, that you put up there uh, by um, Canon Westcott, who was a professor at Cambridge University. He writes, Indeed, taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false. That's fancy law school ease uh, for just simply meaning a closed mind. Only a closed mind. Only a person that says, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is already made up. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. Okay, another legalese to say only a closed mind to the evidence would lead you to say there's not enough evidence. If you have an open mind, the evidence of the resurrection will lead you to believe in it beyond beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, how's the evidence doing for you? Today, you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. Today, you can say, um, I don't have 100% of the answers. You're not gonna have 100% of your questions answered. You're not gonna have 100% proof 100% of the time. But I I just want to encourage you that when you look at the evidence with an open mind, there is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, and I, for one, don't have enough faith to believe the alternative theories that something else explained what happened that day, 2,000 years ago, that Easter morning, that first Easter morning. And I want to give you a chance right now to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together. For 2,000 years, followers of Christ have taken the bread to remember his body given for us on the cross. They've taken the cup to remember his blood shed for us on the cross. For 2,000 years, we've done this because we believe not only in the death, but in the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus even said that each time you take this, you are a witness to the fact that this happened until Christ comes back again someday. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it is a way of taking the witness stand and saying, I believe 
that Jesus rose from the dead. And everybody's welcome here to share the Lord's Supper. You just need to know that you're a follower of Jesus. You say, Glenn, I'm not sure if I've taken that step in the past, or if I'd like to take it today, how would I go about doing it? Well, if you look in front of you in the book rack, you'll see a little card that says resources. And it says, how to become a follower of Jesus. A, B, C. A, you admit your condition before God. Lord, I need a Savior. I've done things that I should have done. I've said things I shouldn't have said. I've uh, not loved people the way that I should love them. I need forgiveness. Then B, believe that Jesus is God's only solution to that condition. By his death on the cross and his resurrection, I believe I can be made right with God. I can be forgiven because Jesus died on the cross and because he rose from the grave. And then C, we choose to follow Christ as our Savior and Lord. Jesus said in John 5, 24, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. I want to give you a chance to do that through the cross of Jesus, through, through the resurrection, the empty tomb. He enables us to have a bridge to cross over from an, an imperfect us over to a relationship, a friendship with a perfect God. I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Um, You'll see a little suggested prayer there. And I'm going to pray this out loud. And I invite you to pray it silently. If you're watching online, I invite you to do the same thing. Or in Arco or in Kalispell, I invite you to pray this prayer silently as I pray it out loud. Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I choose to follow you. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And all the followers of Christ said, amen. Uh, If you've prayed that prayer today or in the past, you are welcome to share uh, the Lord's Supper um, uh, with us now. Let's take just a moment now to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.